This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities. This is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. My name is Robin Oakes. I go by she and they pronouns. I live in Boston in the US and I have identified as bisexual now for 46 years and six months. My work is as an educator. Going back to identifying as bi for 46 plus years, when you first identified as bi, um, were there many people in a similar... What was, what was the bi landscape at that time? There was no bi landscape at the time. Um, when I came out as bi, I had only met... When I, I, first of all, I came out as bi to myself privately, um, right around my 18th birthday. At that time, I had only met, to my knowledge one other person who identified as bi. So I wasn't sure that that was really a thing that one could identify as. But my first month of at university, I fell head over heels in crush um, on another woman. I had this huge, massive um, attraction to another woman, and it forced me to do a bit of an inventory to um, you know reconsider my identity. And it was very clear to me that my previous attractions toward guys had been real and that my current attraction toward this woman was also real. And so it was very easy to actually come to the conclusion that I was bisexual. But what happened for me is I got stuck in the space between knowing and being. Like I knew I knew who I was. I knew I was bi. But I didn't know how to be a bisexual person in the world. This was before Google. This is BG. You know, very different time. So I couldn't pull out a smartphone and say, hey, Mother Google, help me. Give me information, help, because she didn't exist yet. Yeah, so I came out in silence. I went through all of my questioning in silence, and I really got, I got stuck. I was stuck for five long years, and it wasn't until five years later when a coworker came out to me at work. She sat me down and said, there's something I want you to know about me, and I said, what's that? And she said, I'm bisexual, and I blurted out, so am I. And that's the first time I actually had found the courage or space to say that out loud and I felt as though someone had taken a boulder off the top of my head and I don't I didn't realize how much my silence was weighing was weighing me down until it was lifted I had that profound sense of relief and lightness and I felt that I was breathing deeply for the first time in five years and it was great it was a good feeling and that was the beginning of my process of coming out and I've certainly made up for lost time because I'm very, very, very vocal now. You're vocal indeed. And in fact, you've had a couple sessions. And yesterday I was in one of your sessions where you made a point about speaking about the term bi plus in particular. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance, I guess, of the plus? Yeah. So when you think about um, the traditional um, understood binaries of sexuality, you have gay and you have straight. And that's just part of the picture because there are a lot of other identities that are either between those two identities or entirely beyond those two identities. And yeah, there's bisexual, there's pansexual, there's queer, there's fluid, there's omnisexual, there's multisexual, there's polysexual, there's straight-ish, gay-ish, heteroflexible, homoflexible, 
um, straight butt, straight end, gay butt, gay end. Like there's so many different um, ways that people identify and I'm very clear that every person should choose their own identity and that there are different words that work best and feel most comfortable to different people. And so when I talk about this topic, I'm really speaking about a range of identity space rather than about specific words. And so the plus in bi plus is meant to indicate that there are many other labels besides bi that, that encompass this area of, of identity space. And also, when I say plus, that plus is real. Every other identity has value. It's not just a pretend plus. It's a real plus. As you talked about that, that identity and the diversity of those identities, yesterday you shared a bit of data from the U.S. about the dramatic growth in people who identify uh, within LGBT over the past 10 years. And, of course, you know, LGBT in that sense is that's what they sort of um, evaluated there. And over the last 10 years, you talked about how that has grown um, what is the story? What's the story there? Can you summarize that for the people that didn't get to come along? Well, it's interesting because when if you were to break out the data, one thing that I think I'm seeing in various studies is that the number of people who identify as gay and lesbian is pretty steady. It's not changing dramatically. Um, it may be increasing a little bit, but it's not. It's not increasing dramatically, nor is it decreasing dramatically. It's kind of you know holding its space. Um, but what is changing dramatically is the percentage of people identifying as bi plus. That is growing like at wildly rapid rates. And why do I think that's happening is a really good question. I, I have a bunch of theories, but one of them is that, first of all, it's more possible to identify as that I, people finally have... Um, Visibility. There, they, they, there are role models out there. There are people who they can refer to who actually identify that way. Um, it's a term that carries less stigma and less ignorance than it used to. It used to be that if you identified as bi, it would, in many cases, exclude you from LGBTQIA plus community. Now it doesn't in most communities. They, I also think young people have a more inclusive framing of what community means, perhaps because they feel more possible, they feel more entitled to exist. Um, they may not feel as that it's as necessary to defend the borders. Anyway, I do think that there's a way in which most young people have friends of all different sexual orientations, like there's not the same straight and not straight divide that there used to be. So that's part of it. Um, another thing I think is changing is that the definitions have expanded in their scope. So that, for example, when I came out as bi 46 years ago, there was a feeling that in order to identify that way, you had to be 50-50, like right in the middle of the continuum. And if you weren't in the middle of the continuum, then, then you should just shut up because you weren't bi enough, right? And, and I think that the definitions of bisexual have become more expansive. You know, my definition is that I call myself bisexual because I acknowledge that I have in myself the potential to be attracted romantically and or sexually to people of more than one gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way, and not necessarily to the same degree. And a whole lot more people can fit under that umbrella than could under a rigid, you know, 50-50 kind of model. And 
One of the challenges that a lot of bi-plus people have is feelings of illegitimacy. Like, am I bi enough? Well, I know I have these feelings, but I've never actually been in a relationship with someone of this gender or that gender or whatever, so I don't know if I qualify. I don't know if I'm bi enough to count. Or most of my attractions are toward people of one particular gender and only sometimes, occasionally, a different gender, so I don't know if I'm bi enough. I don't know if that counts. Like people, There's a lot of imposter syndrome that happens, and I think that as more and more people adopt an expansive definition of bisexuality, it becomes an identity that's more and more accessible. So that's, that may be another reason that more people feel that they have a space to align themselves. Well, both when you were talking about your first kind of time of disclosure to someone about being bi and looking at that data, you made a point yesterday of saying how these are enough people that felt comfortable identifying as bi. And I think at least, uh, you know, obviously the data you were talking about was based on the U.S., but in other countries... Um, I think that's a really important point around countries that say, oh, well, we don't have people identifying as that. But I guess the question is, is well, or do they? that's not necessarily indicative of the population so much as the safety of those people to claim that, I guess. Yeah, because if you look at places where, for example, it's physically dangerous to be LGBTQIA plus in public, you'll find a smaller percentage of people self-identifying with that. Big surprise, right? Um, and then also the menu is different in different places, the menu of what's available. And so... There's an expression, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So whatever the menu is, and all of our menus are limited in some ways, right? So whatever your particular menu is, you'll try to put yourself inside of those peg holes. And so different people in different parts of the world identify differently. Different people in different communities, even in the same country, may identify differently. And I've seen you know, two universities in the same town or two secondary schools in the same town, the demographics look different. It's because some cool charismatic people use certain labels and other people feel like that's a cool, okay label to have. And a different school, different people are the cool charismatic people and they use different labels. And so we, we, we mimic our peers. We, you know, choose from what we know and what we see. There was a term you used yesterday when you were talking about some of that data. You said that this data, you called it, I believe, medicinal and healing. And I thought that was really, those were interesting ways to describe looking at that growth in data and how more people were being comfortable identifying as bi. Can you talk about that dynamic for you? Yeah, and I said earlier, when I came out as bi, I felt so rare and so unusual and so impossible. One of the most healing things for me was... This was now six years after I first came out to myself. I moved to Boston. I opened up the local feminist newspaper, and there was a, an event listed that was a weekly discussion group at the Women's Center, and they had different topics every week. And the topic for the week I happened to move to Boston happened to be bisexuality. And I was so excited because, again, up until that moment, I had now met two people in the entire planet who I knew identified as bi. And so I showed up at this meeting and walked into the room, and there were 20 women in the room. Honestly, before that moment, I wasn't 100% certain there were 20 bisexual people in the world. Like, I really wasn't. I mean, I I knew it, but I didn't know it. And it was so wonderful. And my, my main memory of that evening was grinning so hard that my cheeks felt weird afterward. They felt that kind of strange feeling that you feel when you smile too much for too long, or so much for so long. And it was just such a... It was medicinal. It was healing. It made me feel, oh, my God, I'm possible. I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. There are other people like me. Like, what a, wow. (laughs) It's just such a great 
great feeling to not feel alone. Can you tell us a little bit about the role of peer groups and how important that is for us as we come to explore our identity, um, to have that connection to community, I guess, even if it's, I'm thinking about community even on a smaller scale, just having a few people to even be able to talk to about your identity and your exploration of identity. Yeah, when you hold an identity that's not in the top 10, that's not in the norm, whatever the norm looks like in a given space, it's very easy to feel like an outsider, like an outlier, like you're not really valid. Um, It's easy to feel alone. Um, And especially sexual orientation in particular is not visible. So I could be in a room with 500 people and still feel like I was the only bisexual person there because I don't know who else is bi. I can't see bisexuality. And so finding other people who share your identity, who you you have this one thing in common with is really powerful because finally there's someone to kind of talk about the nuances of having that identity, talk about the challenges of having that identity, talk about the benefits of having that identity, um, kind of workshopping what the word means and and just finding that sense of community and, and shared experience is so, I think that's so nourishing and I love it. I just, I, I still, until, to this day, I mean, I've identified as bi forever now and it still feels good. Like I still get that feeling of, of relief and just being amongst my people like in this one particular aspect like I'm obviously we're all different but just sharing this thing is really nice it's a good feeling it's a happy feeling it's a relief it's a it relaxes me that's fantastic I I think that level of visibility that you talk about as well because even for gay and lesbian people when they're on their own their sexuality is maybe not apparent but when you're with a partner and you show up with your partner there's that presumption but for bi people that bi visibility doesn't that still doesn't happen exactly exactly because someone who is identifies as gay or lesbian can put a picture of their partner on the desk or they can bring their partner to your know, work event and people will say oh i didn't realize that that cal was gay and that in in that case they might be correct but if i did that if I brought my wife to a work event, people would say, oh, I didn't realize Robin was a lesbian, but it's actually not how I identify. She does, but I don't. And so partners don't do the job. Pictures of your partner on your desk don't do the job. Um, and just information doesn't do that. You need that word. You actually have to use the word, which is different. And it's, and it's an extra extra burden because once you bring up the word, then you're you're interacting directly with other people's prejudices and stereotypes and misconceptions, and then you have to explain, you know, what your identity actually means. Kind of going down that same path, you talked about that term, horizontal hostility. Um, And we do hear about that a little bit uh, in Australia. A lot of people will talk about, like, lateral violence even sometimes. But for folks that maybe aren't familiar with that dynamic, can you explain what that is and how it manifests in different ways? So horizontal hostility or horizontal oppression is a term um, from the social sciences. And it is the understanding that when people are marginalized and experiencing the stress of marginalization or oppression, that we sometimes take our pain and frustration out horizontally or laterally on other people in our own community, sometimes people who are a little bit more marginalized than we are. You know, for a long time, trans people were definitely the people who got kicked to the curb within you know, the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, but we do this, we do this all the time. We do this within our subgroups too, like even within 
so like lesbian or gay people saying, oh, bisexual people, like, what are you doing here? Like, you don't belong here or go make your own damn community or, or you don't experience oppression the way we experience oppression or, or I would never date one of you because I know you would just leave me for someone, all this stuff. Like that's all, I feel like that's all horizontal hostility. Um, and then, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not productive. It's not useful. And I don't, accept it as being okay. Like it's something that I really like to push back on. And I think naming it is one way to push back on it because most people who do it aren't, I don't think they're aware that they're doing it. They're not intentionally saying, I'm going to do horizontal hostility on you. Like they're feeling uncomfortable and, and the pain of oppression. And then they just, they just like lash out. You made a point of unpacking some of the obstacles and stereotypes that bi people face like those and how there is a power in the explanation of why, even if it doesn't excuse the behavior, so to speak, but the power in bi-plus people talking to other bi-plus people and having a bit of an explanation about where that dynamic comes from. Um, how do you think that you know helps, I guess, to some extent, to understand how where it comes from? Well, we when we're when people have stereotypes about us and when people treat us poorly, we internalize that and we start to feel that there's something wrong with us, like oh, there's something bad about being bisexual. There isn't really, you know, being bisexual is actually a neutral quality. But so when I understand why there are stereotypes out there and that those stereotypes aren't actually caused by me, that is healing and helpful and it allows me to frame things in a way that doesn't put me at blame. So for example, understanding that people think in binaries, they tend to like take complex things and squeeze them into binaries you know, that helps me understand why people, some people say, oh, bisexuality doesn't exist. Or, or that if you say you're bi, you're really just like in transition or something like that. Like that helps me understand like, oh, that's binary thinking at work. That's actually not about me personally. That's not even about bisexual people specifically. It's about binary thinking generally. Um, when people say, oh, um, oh, bisexual, that's terrible. They're just like all promiscuous, slutty people. That's not about me specifically. That's not about bisexual people specifically. That's about our cultural discomfort with sex and sexuality. Like, so I think always taking these things and bringing them to a different place, like that's, it's not a personal thing. It's not, even though it hurts me personally sometimes, it's not caused by me and it's not really about me. It's about other people thinking in binaries. It's about other people being uncomfortable and awkward around the topics of sex or sexuality. It's about... Um, yeah, there, there's so much more I could say about this, but just it, it, it's placing the responsibility where it belongs, and it makes me personally feel less more comfortable being bisexual. Because like being bisexual, it's like it doesn't make me any specific behavior, or the, all those stereotypes are not de- definitionally me. They're just about limitations in cultural thinking. I love that idea that you talk about. You know, minority stress as, a, as an environmental problem, less so than that of the individual. You also talked about oppression written on your body versus if it's not written on your body. For, for Again, for folks that were not so lucky to be here, could you talk about that dynamic? Yes. So if you carry, if you hold an identity that's visible, it means that every interaction that you have in public with another human being is going to be filtered through their stereotypes or their perceptions of what your identity means. So if you're a woman... If someone like reads you as a woman, they're gonna like all the things they think women are. They're gonna filter through that. If your skin is black or brown, people are gonna filter through that. If you um, are sitting in a wheelchair, 
like whatever ableist views people hold is going to be filtered through that. And so every interaction you have is therefore kind of tainted or distorted by other people's preconceptions. If your identity, and that, that's, that's a lot of work. That's a huge burden to carry and it's terrible. It's like absolutely terrible and it shouldn't be, but it, you know, it is, it shouldn't be. Um, if your identity is not visible, it, you have a different set of challenges when you're interacting with other people. Um, one of them, of course, is that um, you're not seen. So you're erased from the imaginary landscape, like you're just not even imagined, um, which is a burden. That's a huge burden. Um, another challenge is that I think yesterday someone said that people will say things right in front of your face, not even realizing that you're there. Um, another challenge is not knowing who else is like you. Like when I talked about feeling so alone, I'm sure there were lots of bi people around me. There, there were. I'm sure I was like far from the only one, but I didn't know that. And I didn't know who else was like me. Um, another challenge is that in order to be seen, you have to actively do something and disclose that information about yourself. And that means that you spend a lot of emotional energy writing scripts about how am I going to come out to this person? Where am I going to come out to them? When am I going to come out to them? What am I going to say? How are they going to respond? What's the potential cost of, of, of coming out to them? Like, are they going to no longer want to interact with me? Is, am I going to lose this friendship? Like, what's going to happen? And like, just that constant having to have those internal negotiations with yourself and then trying to figure out what's the way to do this that is somewhat appropriate. Like, how do you even bring these topics up? in ways that other people don't say, why are you talking about this? You know, that there's, so, there's so, many, so many challenges, and I mean, I could keep on going probably for 20 minutes about the different challenges of holding an invisible identity, but it's a real specific challenge, and, and I think it needs to be acknowledged, and it's not the same as having a visible identity. It's a different, different set of interesting um, things that you have to deal with. And, and on that note, you know, the workshop brought out a discussion of a lot of crap experience basically faced by by plus people um how do you look at yourself when you're handling you know because you know you've done this you've been to better together before and presented and you've done these workshops before how do you look after yourself i guess when you're helping other people you know work through these issues but ultimately you're being exposed vicariously to quite a bit um how do you yeah how do you as a leader i suppose or a workshop facilitator look after yourself well it gets easier and easier it does. Like, I don't, I think, interestingly, I, I feel most, mostly healed. It took a really long time. It took 46 years. But I do feel that it's rare that it gets to me. So when I do encounter other people's um, lack of understanding or ignorance, I don't feel usually as personally wounded. I sometimes get mad at people or frustrated. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm human, right? But most of the time, things just wash off. And I also understand the value of having these conversations. There is so much value. And I also strongly believe that every single time um, I share some of the ideas that I carry with me with other people, they're going to share them with other people too. And so I do feel that we're sending this wave of healing like out into the world. So it's way beyond the people in any given room. It's really, and even if people take just one idea that I said that is helpful to them and they share that out, that's... That's how the world changes. And I have seen the world change. 
I am seeing the world change. Like I believe that in the last 10 years or so, we are finally getting some traction. Um, for the first 30 or so years I did my work, I felt that I was just like banging on a brick wall. You know, and I just felt like I was spinning my wheels and all the other words to describe working really hard and getting nowhere. <laughs> and I do see change now. I see cultural change. I see more representation. I see more and more public figures coming out as bisexual or pansexual. I see, I see you know, the, the, the youth data is an example of that. I see more and more people feeling comfortable identifying as bi plus. That's really, that makes me feel happy. It's like just knowing that there are more people who are comfortable existing as themselves in public. It feels really good. So I, I do think we're turning a corner. There's also, more, um, dis, there's also more research. There's more disaggregation of the data. Like finally, we're not just looking at LGBTQIA plus as one data set. We're saying, oh, well, what about this subgroup? What about that subgroup? Because there are some things we share in common and there are also areas where our experiences are different and we need to do both. Like we need to keep us, we need to talk about the big picture and we also need to dig down into the specifics. How do you feel about the term, or if someone called you a bicon, you know, as a bisexual icon, would you be comfortable with that term? Sure, it's cute. <laughs> and one of the things, but bi plus folks have really good puns. We have, like the, the prefix bi lends itself to all kinds of wonderful punnery. Um, bi folks have great puns, trans folks have great puns. Like there should be some privileges <laughs> that are special and this is this is one of them like there are so many ways you can play with that word well bicon robin oaks thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today i hope you enjoy the rest of your time here in australia and thanks for chatting to us for well 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 thank you <laughs> thanks for listening to well 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 supported by thorn harbor health on joy and the community radio network for more lgbtiq plus health and well-being and much more check out thorn harbor on social media at thorn harbor or via the website thornharbour.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.